you've heard Walt uh, mention this before, and when when there's something up that we have to be gone from here for a week, it seems like it's a month before we're, we're back again. And though we were just, uh, where were we? We were right over here last week um, at our weekend retreat for Alpha, um, not a far distance away. Uh, it seemed that uh, it's been a long time since we've been with you. What a great weekend that was, too. I, I hope some of the rest of you that haven't been on an Alpha weekend will have an opportunity to go on either the next or one of our subsequent uh, weekend retreats. It's just a great time to get to know one another, and the Holy Spirit showed up in a powerful way, and that added icing to the cake, and uh, it was a great time of teaching about the Holy Spirit, too, last weekend. But we did miss you, and thanks to Walt for uh, uh, carrying you guys here uh, while we were gone. Karen Elliott asked me to um, expand a little bit on the the program, the Angel Tree program. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. Uh, it was started by Charles Colson some time ago, and it's designed to be a, an outreach to families of inmates. There's lots of inmates in South Carolina, and their families are here, still here, trying to function, and in many cases they have children and the children don't have any way of receiving gifts, presents, that sort of thing, uh, because there just isn't enough money to go around. So uh, what we did last year and we're doing again this year is teaming up with the Angel Tree Ministry folks to make sure that these kids of inmates have a great Christmas. And that's what this Christmas tree is over here. We haven't jumped the season quite yet. There's angels on there to remind you, angel tree, obviously. But the important thing is for you to see Karen Elliott back at the um, information table here after the service if you are interested in helping with this program. Here's some of the things that you could do. You can buy a gift, 20 to $25 is what they're asking for a child of an inmate. Um, we'll be having a party here, and we're excited about this, a Christmas party for all of them on December the 10th, I think that's a Saturday, right, um, for the children to give to get their gifts. We'll have a, it'll be a big celebration, big party time, some uh, games and food and uh, uh, music and that sort of stuff. So it'll be a lot of fun, but we need some people to help us with that. And um, she'll also need help with wrapping the gifts. You don't have to wrap what you buy. You can just bring it here and we'll have a team of people that will, will wrap them to make sure that uh, we get the right gift to the right kid because what she's going to give you when you go back to the table here to see Karen is a child's name and age and kind of what they wish they could get for Christmas. And so that's, that's how the program works. And we just want to make sure that the right gift gets to the right child so she'll need to have them unwrapped, brought to her, and she'll take care of that. Uh, but a lot of other ways to help with the party, and you'll hear more about this later on. Just see Karen after the service back here, and uh, let's get signed up and ready to go with the uh, uh, Angel Tree uh, Christmas celebration here at Renovation this coming year. Seems like there was something else I was going, oh, I know what it was. Uh, next week is, is sort of a special, well, a very special week here. I'm headed to pick up uh, some missionary friends of mine. You've heard 
me talk a lot about Nepal in, in the past. And um, our family that we normally stay with, a pastor and his wife from Nepal, are in the United States and have been for a couple of weeks now. But they're coming to our house tomorrow. And uh, I need to go pick them up, bring them here. Next Sunday, they will be in our church. You'll get to meet Sundar and Sarita. And I think we have their picture somewhere. Oh, that's, that's my little map in Nepal because people never know where Nepal is. Some, a lot of folks think it's in Africa. It's not. It's in Asia, and it's between India and China, India and Tibet. Uh, that little strip of land right there that's about the size of Tennessee, and Kathmandu is the capital right there in the middle. The next picture is, is Sundar and Sarita. They, they will be uh, uh, doing the service for us next week. You'll get to hear about what they do in their country. Uh, this, is, this is the modern-day Paul. If you open up your book and you read the or your Bible and you read the book of Acts, that's Sundar Tapa. He's been imprisoned. He's been tortured. His house has been ransacked. Um, the church has been uh, burned and, and, and uh, defaced and all this over the years. But today, he's serving on a council for the government of Nepal to help write a new constitution to help Christians have rights in the country of Nepal. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing story. So they'll be here, and um, you'll love to get to meet them. And I hope we have, an, uh, there'll be an alpha this coming Wednesday night, so we'll have an opportunity to see them there as well. What do I have next? Is that, my, is that my only slide after that? Okay, okay. All right. Let's uh, get on with the purpose for which we came, and that's to... Uh, to worship God. And I want to do that by starting uh, with the reading of the Scripture, which is Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Matthew 8, 28. This, in this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only rule for our faith and our life in every aspect of our lives. Uh, we do believe that it's true. And I want you to listen to God's word this morning. Verse 28. When he arrived, <clears throat> this is Jesus, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. A little different ending to the story than what we've seen in the other uh, uh, accounts that we've been looking at in, in Matthew so far. You know, not many people are amazed by anything anymore. Have you noticed that? Nothing amazes us. It wasn't always this way, though. In the Middle Ages, people were, people were amazed by power and by wealth and by pageantry. 
and then in the early days of the Industrial Revolution and right up to, to almost present day, uh, people were amazed by science and other discoveries and achievements. People have been amazed at discoveries that prolong life. They've been amazed at the speed and the luxury of how we can travel in our cars and, and airplanes across long distances. And they've been amazed at the ease with which we can communicate by telephone virtually all around the world, everywhere except my house, which has no reception at all. I don't know, understand how right over here in this one little spot there's no reception, but everywhere else and I can talk to people in, on the other side of the world. You know? And for some time we were amazed by space travel. We were amazed by computers. Computers the size of this building, and now they come in the, you know, the size of a watch. Uh, uh, just amazed. But not much amazes us anymore. The accelerating flow of inventions and their rapid dissemination throughout the world have kind of numbed us, just numbed us, and made, us, made, made even the most amazing things that we can think of kind of commonplace. Oh, so what's next? What's next? Unfortunately, the same is true with Christianity. The most amazing thing about Christianity is God's grace. I think we would all agree with that. We used to speak of it as amazing grace. Remember? Remember those old days? <laughs> but amazing grace, unfortunately, is not all that amazing anymore to some people. Yet one reality does continue to amaze all of mankind if we give it a chance, and, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus amazes us because He is infinitely engaging. It's like we never come to the end of it. He never exhausts our interests. Beyond any doubt, more books have been written about Jesus Christ than about any other person, living or dead. Most people in the world, I'm talking about, most people in the entire world don't want to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior or as the Son of God. They won't bow to Him as their Lord. But somehow, most of the people who have at some time or other heard of Jesus just can't quite dismiss him from their minds. He's there. He, they're always thinking about this person, Jesus. I've never met somebody in Nepal or, or, or other parts of Asia that has not heard of Jesus. Everybody's heard of Jesus, it seems. They all believe he's a great teacher. Oh, yeah, I've heard some of the things that he said. He was a wonderful teacher. And that's about as far as they'll go. It's as if the person of Jesus hovers over our discontent. And who he is and what he is about always remains a current question for us. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've talked about this a number of times, we read that when Jesus had finished his teaching, the crowds were amazed. There's that word. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. They were amazed. And when Jesus began to express his authority by healings, they were more amazed. 
That's what these accounts that we've been looking at are all about. Then they witness two more areas. The one last week where Jesus displays his authority over nature and this week's scripture where he displays his authority over even demons. And in connection with the first, the nature, we read of the disciples' amazement specifically. In the scripture it says, the men were amazed and asked as they're on this boat and the waters are calmed, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Remember two weeks ago we looked at two would-be disciples and the first would-be disciple said, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus explained to him that, well, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And all of a sudden, the would-be disciple decides he's not going to follow him wherever he goes. And the second wanted to attend to some family duties first before he followed Jesus. But Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You see, according to Jesus, nothing can come before a deliberate, practical, active following uh, for the one who wants to be his disciple, his Christ follower. Then last week, Walt took us on a boat ride, took you on a boat ride, and the boat ride went to the other side of the lake. They, then he got into the boat, and the disciples, it says, followed him, followed Jesus. You see, their faith was small, very small, but they were following him. That didn't keep them from following him. And they had actually already left their homes, their occupations, their family, their land, everything behind to be with Jesus. In chapter 4 of Matthew, we were told Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. Also in chapter 4, James and John left the boat and their father and followed him. And then in chapter 9 that we're going to look at after Christmas, we'll be told that Matthew, the writer of the book of Matthew, abandoned his tax collector book, uh, booth and followed Jesus uh, wherever he wanted to go. And there's a great deal more of following that we will see to come. The disciples had much to learn about what being a Christ follower meant. But these disciples had heard Jesus' call. They had trusted him, and they had obeyed his summons. To use the phrase from the Sermon on the Mount, they had passed through the small gate, and they were on the narrow path that leads to a life, a full life, an abundant life with Jesus Christ. Their faith was weak at this point, and it needed to become stronger. You see, the calling of Jesus leads to faith, and then faith leads those who believe to become Christ followers. And those who follow Jesus grow in the knowledge of who he is and all that he can do. And that leads me to, to two questions. First of all, are you on that path, that narrow path, as you sit here this morning? Can you say, I'm on that path? And the second question is, have you left all those lesser loyalties behind so that you can follow Jesus? It's not enough, as we've learned merely to be impressed with Jesus' person and his teachings. 
or even to be amazed at these miracles that he's been performing. The most important thing is actually to follow him. Follow him. And at the end of the account of the calming of the storm, the disciples were asking themselves, remember this? What kind of man is this? There's always funny stuff in the Bible, I think, if you really look for it. And almost immediately after they say, what kind of man is this? It's as if we're looking at a comic movie. If you read this, in, instead of breaking it up into little sections, if you read all of Matthew 8 together, it's amusing that in this account, after they've asked that question, what kind of man is this? While they were still wrestling with that answer, getting out of the boat on the other side, the demons came out of the tombs in the graveyard saying, he's the son of God. They're answering the question for the disciples. The demons in the graveyard where no one would have anything to do with them. I don't know whether you've ever looked evil in the face or not. I've got three pictures here of evil. The first is, oh, we're, there we go. The first is this guy. On a trip that we took to Nepal, I'm unpacking bags and look out the window, and this guy had shown up at Sundar's house. He's a shaman, a witch doctor, a priest. Somehow or other, he heard that these uh, Americans, Christians, had shown up in his country, and he was chanting and throwing flower petals, and, and it wasn't to welcome us there, and he went around the entire compound. Uh, for 30 minutes or so uh, with incantations of something that just felt evil. The second picture is a shaman, a priest at one of the temples. And look at him. He's got ashes all over his face, painted like war paint. Scary-looking dude, isn't he? <laughs> and the third one is... Uh, 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 what do you call it? The snake charmer. Snake charmer. Um, actually, they do that. I, I didn't know whether that was just something we saw in movies or not, but he's there holding snakes and charming snakes. And if he isn't a sight, ugh. I mean, I, I get kind of shivers just seeing him there. But if you could see him in person, just eyes that would, would pierce. And, and as you walk toward this you know, person halfway across the parking lot here, you can feel the sense of oppression that is all around. It's awful. Well, these demons addressed Jesus boldly and, and cried, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? This phrase, Son of God, will be used later by the disciples and by Peter and by the chief priests and by the centurion at the foot of the cross. It is, of course, ironic that the first people to use this term, Son of God, do so under an evil influence. But Matthew would not have any doubt that, that though the demons are evil and destructive, they have access, as it were, to information, inside information, about the spiritual realities in the world. 
They are a part of that spiritual realm of evil. The phrase son of man here also directly refers to Jesus as the Messiah. Those who believed in a, in a coming Messiah regarded him as the one who would judge the world and put all the wrongs to right. That's why the demons instantly suspect that they're in trouble if Messiah shows up. The end of their time of freedom has come. And they're quite right because Jesus has indeed come to put the forces of evil at bay. And what happens is these demons leave the man, the men and enter pigs uh, and they're driven into the lake. And that's a sign of what Jesus will do in the future in his death and resurrection so that all evil of every sort will be destroyed. Mark and Luke, uh, and I've cautioned you all through here, or not cautioned, but uh, encouraged you to look at the accounts in the other Gospels to see what, what else goes on, because sometimes one of the other Gospel writers will tell, it, tell the story a little bit different or add a little more information to what we have. Mark and Luke add that they called Jesus the Son of the Most High God. And Luke says, they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. The abyss, we know that place in Revelation where uh, the demons are cast. And their comments in this little section in Matthew reveal that they knew and believed more about Jesus than most human beings today know or even acknowledge. I think the demons recognized the following three things. First... They recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. The disciples were only beginning at this time to catch a glimpse of that truth. And it's not fully articulated by them until Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16, where he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus even explains to Peter that it takes a special revelation from God to make that truth clear to him. But here the demons instinctively address Jesus as the unique Son of God. There's no doubt in their mind. They know. They know. And James has written, even the demons believe and shudder. They knew. Secondly, the demons recognize that there is a final judgment there is going to be a final judgment, and they will suffer torment when the time comes. Now, as human beings today, many have dangerous illusions about that very point, the final judgment. Some believe that there will be no final judgment. Some believe that if there is a final judgment, they'll be spared that final judgment. Some believe that they are without any serious shortcomings so they have nothing to worry about in God's sight. Some believe that if they are blamed for anything, God will be too kind to judge them at the final day. And some believe that if there is a judgment, the place where they'll be sent will be not that bad, kind of pleasant. It's kind of like um, just a matter of spending some quality time with some good friends. <laughs> Dangerous illusions that we have. But the demons didn't have any of these illusions. They didn't share any of those illusions. They know that there is a hell. They know that they will be sent there 
at the proper time. Their greatest fear is that they'll be sent there before the final judgment. They won't even be able to mingle around here and do their little stuff till the final judgment. Thirdly, the demons recognize that Jesus has authority to dispose of them as he wishes and when he wishes. There's that authority thing again that we've been looking at for so long. The destruction of the pigs showed that showed the demons had indeed left the two demon-possessed men and that the men were completely healed, never to be infected again. There was no question in the minds of those that saw this as to whether the demons would trouble these two men again. Uh, the point of this story is that Jesus, who has authority to teach people as he was doing on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount when he, he amazed them so much, also has authority over disease, both close at hand and at a distance. Authority over the lives of the people who want to follow him. Authority over the wind and waves on the lake. And authority even over the shadowy forces of evil, the demons. That's what we need to know and to remember as we ourselves say we want to sign on to be Christ followers. Jesus isn't just a somebody with good ideas. He isn't just a somebody who will tell us how to establish a relationship with God. He is somebody with authority over everything. Everything that the physical world on the one hand and the non-physical world on the other can throw at us. Doesn't matter what it throws at us. We know that he has authority over it. This is a Jesus we can trust with every aspect of our lives. And all of this that we've been looking at for these six weeks is really about faith in Jesus about salvation, and about Christ following. And when we read about the possession of men by demons, I think we need to understand that we are just like them apart from Jesus Christ. We're just like the demon-possessed men true we we may not be possessed by demons literally but we are possessed by an evil spirit of sin and by our own evil natures our sin leads to various acts that drive us away from people and other human beings away from us separating us from them here's the big idea It would be accurate to say that we are dying people living among dead people for life apart from Jesus Christ is a graveyard. There is no natural hope of being saved. We can't save ourselves. No natural hope of being saved unless Jesus comes. 
and I wrote down here in my notes because this, this came to me over and over as I would go through this section but for the grace of God that could have been me that could have been you that could have been any of us salvation comes when Jesus addresses our evil spirit of sin and drives it out think about it that's what salvation really is Jesus left the men who had been delivered to, to be witnesses to their countrymen, saying, and this is, this is from the Mark account, he says, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, but for the grace of God. They did that. And again, we are told that the people were amazed. They were amazed at what he had done. I like to end each one of these sessions with a, with a question. And here's the question. I think I even wrote it down there. If people are not amazed at Jesus today, might it be because you and I have not witnessed act adequately to his wonderful power and his great amazing grace think about it if you've been saved from sin that was an act of God don't you think that you should tell other people about it don't you think you should so whom, whom is it that you will tell today whom will you tell? And what effect might that have on one person's life? What effect could it have on the world?